rock icon and Washington, D.C. native Mary Timoney started out in the band Autoclave. Wait, 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 Rich, and- what the hell is this music? Oh, it's from King's Quest V, Absence Makes the Heart Go Yonder. What does that have to do with Mary Timothy? Oh, well, you see, she often uses modal melodies that are reminiscent of medieval music. That is a pretty flimsy connection. So as co-founder of this podcast, I am exercising my veto. Find something else. Fine. Indie rock icon and Washington, D.C. native Mary Timoney started out Rich, in the- rich, rich. What? Sonic the Hedgehog? Oh, yeah. Mary Timoney has actually cited the game as an influence. No more damn video game music. Okay, okay, just give me a second. Indie rock icon in Washington, D.C. Why? Because today we're talking about Helium's The Magic City, obviously. This is Discord and Rhyme. people and aging astronauts welcome to discord and rhyme a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song we're on both twitter and instagram at discord pod and our awesome website discordpod.com which amanda designed yeah she did has show notes in all of our previous episodes you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify and all over the place really we're all over the place all right roll call Rich Bunnell, Dan Watkins, and Amanda Rogers. Just a trio this week. Uh, producer Mike was set to join us, but he's been on a ton of episodes lately, which is tough to do since he also produces the show. And then there were three by Genesis. <laughs> Finally, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash discord pod if anyone has income to spare for a nerdy music podcast. And thanks to everyone who signed up already. So it's an exciting milestone for dorks because this is episode number 42. <laughs> Dan is our host today and he's got an album for us that's about life, the universe, and a little bit of everything. What do you got for us, Dan? I have got Helium's 1997 mystical masterpiece, The Magic City. At long last. So why'd you pick it? One of the main reasons why I chose it is because it's an album that I don't think enough people know about. It's kind of a hidden gem that I actually didn't discover until relatively recently. And it's just an incredibly rich album with so many musical ideas crammed into every song. And it's just a great sounding album and people should hear it. I like incredibly rich albums. You would. (laughs) So Dan, tell us about your own history with Helium and the music of Mary Timoney. Well, as I hinted earlier, I somehow managed to completely miss Helium in my indie rock dominated college years. Uh, I first stumbled on them while browsing reviews on Rate Your Music. And after reading a couple of glowing write-ups, I kind of thought, hey, a 90s band on Matador Records I never heard of. I should probably check them out. So I started with the debut, The Dirt of Luck, which I really liked. However, it took me a couple of years to get around to exploring the band further. And it wasn't until I happened to catch the video for Leon's Space Song that I immediately knew I needed to get this album. As much as I liked the debut, I was totally blown away by how ambitious and colorful this album is. As for me, so this is sad, but there was actually a sad period of about 10 years where I demoted myself from a music junkie to a music enthusiast. 
It's really awful uh, mm. because I dug my comfortable little niche of nerd rock, hip hop and dance music and just decided to stay in it. Uh, but I still robotically did the rounds on Pitchfork's best new music section. Uh, and in 2014, I was delighted to discover X Hex's Rips, uh, which was a catchy, straightforward power pop album and not drone music. So <laughs> that was notable. <laughs> Um, so I mentioned the album uh, to a friend since college who's always been more plugged into indie music than me. And he was and, and his response was, yeah, dude, it's Mary Timoney. And just the way he said her name, like her genius was a foregone conclusion. It just made me have to investigate further. And so I listened to Helium first. And when I got around to hearing Magic City, it just completely blew me away and honestly got me jazzed up again about music in general. Like this is one of those albums that brought me to this podcast. So thank you, Helium. Wow. Hmm. Mm hmm. This is part of why I've been bugging you to do this album so much, Dan. Uh, anyway, uh, so Amanda, how about you? What about you and Helium? Well, my history with Mary Timoney and Helium is very extensive and goes back about three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we thank you some, for joining us on such short notice, Amanda. Yeah, we had some scheduling issues and I jumped in at the last minute so we wouldn't have to. OK, you guys should know this album was supposed to be covered like a year ago. But stuff kept happening and we just kicked it down the road again and again and again. So to stop us from having to do that again, I thought, OK, I'll take one for the team and talk about this album that I've never, ever heard. And I'd, I'd never even heard of Mary Timoney until you guys started talking about her when we first started up this podcast. Uh, so this has been a really fun crash course. Well, we're glad to have you here. So, OK, Dan, before we get into the Magic City, tell us a little bit about Helium and Mary Timoney in general. Timoney was born and raised in Washington, D.C. As a teenager, she attended the Duke Ellington School of the Arts, where she studied viola and played guitar in the jazz band. She moved to Boston to attend Boston University and co-founded the all-female band Autoclave in 1990. The band was based in D.C. and played together when Mary was in between semesters of school. The long-distance partnership was ultimately short-lived, but the band managed to produce two singles for Discord Records. In 1992, Mary joined what would become Helium, the band was originally named Chupa and consisted of folk artist Mary Lou Lord on vocals, Jason Hatfield, that is Juliana Hatfield's brother, who Mary was dating at the time, on guitar, and stepbrother Sean Devlin on drums and Brian Dunton on bass. When Mary Lou left, the band changed its name to Helium and started playing Mary Timoney's songs, ultimately casting her as the leader of the band. The band released a pair of 7 Inches and the Pirate Prude EP, which earned the band enough attention to sign a deal with Matador Records. Around this time, Brian Dunton left the band and was replaced by Polvo guitarist Ash Bowie on bass. Helium released its full-length debut, The Dirt of Luck, in 1995. The album had a fuzzy, distorted 90s indie rock sound based around Mary's distinct guitar style. 
Support for the album included a slot on the 1995 Lollapalooza tour and landed a couple of video spots on the coveted Beers and Butthead. Let's check out Small Nostrils. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think anybody's nostrils would look small to you, Butthead. <laughs> you look like a cow. Experiencing burnout from touring and the music business in general, Mary took a break and worked a series of menial temp jobs. When the band regrouped, Mary had become disinterested with playing guitar and began writing more songs on keyboard. Tired of the indie rock trends of the day, she retreated into listening to classic rock and some genre called progressive rock. Uh, Pro- you guys heard of this? What's that? It's like Loverboy? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's related to funk. Ah, yes. Yeah, they're the same thing, right? Didn't we mm-hmm. go over that? Yeah. So anyway... She established a more collaborative relationship with the band and enlisted Mitch Easter as producer. The resulting music was very different from the distorted guitar-centric sound of the previous album. 1997's No Guitars EP gave a preview of the new direction for the band. While the title was indeed a flat-out lie, there are plenty of guitars damn lie. Awful lies. The EP did draw from a much more diverse musical palette than The Dirt of Luck. The proper full-length follow-up, The Magic City, was released a few months later, it expanded on the lush sound of the No Guitars EP, and lyrically, the album moved away from the social and feminist themes of the previous album in favor of a more escapist landscape of fantasy and space elements. Woo! Yeah, I don't know why I didn't recommend this album to you earlier, Amanda. <laughs> Those are my favorite things. <laughs> Unfortunately, The Magic City had wind up being Helium's final album. After a European tour with Slater Kenny and a shorter leg in the U.S. supporting Sonic Youth, the band quietly disbanded. Fortunately, Mary has gone to do one or two more projects since Helium that we'll get into later. All right, it's time to buy a one-day pass from the Magic City Central Transit Terminal and take the blue line down to track one, Vibrations. Vibrations every I just love the sound of this album. It's a huge step up from the rougher indie rock production of the previous album. And this is a great choice as an opener. It really sets the stage uh, for an album full of songs that take unexpected turns into different sonic textures. Once you're writing the fat bass heavy riff, it shifts into the bright harpsichord, just eventually turn you completely around into the electronic video game type detour. video game music (laughs) well there's gonna be more sorry i told you what the whole episode on mega man wasn't enough for you (laughs) i would do another one if i had infinite episodes (laughs) i know you would as far as lyrics go as uh, discord and rhymes resident non-lyrics guy i probably won't parse much more meaning from the lyrics on the album beyond hey that's a neat imagery 
However, one line I find particularly interesting here is the reference to a necklace of 30 eyes, which makes me think of the necklace of 50 eyes that is mentioned in the song Yours to Keep by label mates Guided by Voices. And I have no idea if that's an intentional reference at all, but I'd like to think it is. Helium Guided by Voices expanded lyrical universe. <laughs> it's like friendship bracelets, but really gross. Well, as far as the lyrics go, I think they're fun to read. Uh, and the gatefold on the vinyl is very lovely, but they're hard to make out when you're actually listening. And as far as this song goes, for me, everything you need to know uh, as far as her general approach on the album, uh, it's in the first two lines. Vibrations every day in the dark, you feel OK. It's see, it's just music as escapism, like music is vibrations. And for me, that's kind of the Rosetta Stone for the entire album. Uh, and I actually like this quote from an interview with Magnet Magazine, uh, where she said, quote, even though I was around what became the Riot Girl stuff of its time, that wasn't the music I was making either. I think it sounds like an alien coming down to Earth and looking at issues, a Cindy Sherman thing acting out different roles. And that's kind of like the way I approach the lyrics on the album, too. Yeah, it's a good summation of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda, what do you think of it? We're off to a really great start here. Uh, this starts off by making you think it's going to be a relatively straightforward rock song, but it just keeps going to all kind of unexpected new places. It's just it's always interesting and it's really catchy. And as for the lyrics, I usually like to pay attention to them, but not so much I found on this album because, you know, like Rich said, they're usually not that easy to understand for one thing. And the songs are all interesting enough without that, but I, I just don't really mind not knowing what she's singing about. But I do pay extra attention when the subject is dragons and or astronauts, which is basically just how <laughs> I live my life anyway. So that is, that's really, really fun for me. I actually just finished rereading a book that involved space travel on a dragon. <laughs> wow. So- <laughs> you were meant for this episode. I really was. Well, I find that when she has a really cool line, uh, she she makes sure that you can hear it. That's true. All the dragons do kind of pop out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and as for the song itself, I just find it really just functional and clever at the same time, which is a tough balance. Like, like it sounds really straightforward, but there's just a ton going on. Like the drums change a lot and they're apparently both Sean and Ash. They're both credited in the in the liner notes, uh, hmm. though. I don't know which part is which. Uh, and, and I just love the way like Mary begins several of the lines ahead of the beat, like the do you. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it like it's like the glue that holds together the song. And um. It's just a nice way to like introduce you to the album. Yeah, it really just kind of presents it as this is going to be an album where it will take weird turns that you do not see coming. Yeah. So I hereby dub this Good Vibrations. <laughs> I like that. If you must. <laughs> so in case you thought this album was an Earth-only affair, I got news for you. Track two is Leon's Space Song.
chord, this is a more normal sounding indie rock song, but the icy Chamberlain line winds up making this sound more like the cars. And, uh, oh, hey, what the hell is a Chamberlain? Oh, well, producer Mike couldn't join us today, but we can put him in in post-production. Producer Mike, what's a Chamberlain? The Chamberlain, invented by Harry Chamberlain in 1949, is a keyboard instrument that replicates the sounds of other musical instruments by means of short pre-recorded tapes that play whenever a key is pressed. And those of you who have listened to our episode on the Moody Blues to our children's children's children might be thinking, Producer Mike, that sounds an awful lot like a Mellotron. Indeed it does, and that's where the story really gets interesting. In 1962, Chamberlain salesman Bill Franson secretly absquatulated off to England with two Chamberlains, renamed them Fransons, and, altering their design slightly, created the Mellotron. Eventually, a deal was reached whereby Chamberlains would only be sold in the US and Mellotrons would only be sold in the UK. But because the two instruments share some of the same tapes, it can sometimes be difficult to tell a Chamberlain from a Mellotron by ear alone. Incidentally, one of the two Chamberlains stolen by Franson was eventually purchased by Todd Rundgren and used on the XTC album Skylarking. Surprisingly, that melody wasn't even in the demo version of the song, which is kind of crazy considering that it's sort of what ends up making the song for me. And uh, the, the band recorded this album in Mitch Easter studio in North Carolina, which was apparently just littered with instruments for the band to play around on. And I'm guessing that the Chamberlain was just one of those toys he had laying around. The Fidelitorium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I looked up how much it cost to book the Fidelitorium, but in case we all wanted to travel to like, North Carolina, but it's too much. Oh, let's do it. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Patreon. We can make it happen. One of these days, yeah. Patreon stretched here. Uh, the Chamberlain gets a lot of play throughout the entire album. It's kind of used more traditionally, I think, elsewhere. Here it's got a bit more of a kind of use like a more modern keyboard style. But it gets a direct shout out in the title of the song, The Riddle of the Chamberlain on the No Guitars EP. That is a riddle. So they like their Chamberlain. And this song did have a music video, which is what I, the reason why I bought the album. And the video features Merrick working as a mechanic, uh, throwing tires around. And MTV apparently did not run it because they are jerks. Well, it's worth noting that Mary is not just a mechanic in the video, but a mechanic who retrofits Ash and Sean's car into a rainbow dragon that takes off into space. <laughs> yeah, I watched the video just about an hour ago. It's really cool. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what do you think of the song, Amanda? I like it. <laughs> Uh, that Chamberlain bit <laughs> me reminds too. me a lot of Planet Claire by the B-52s. It's a really similar sound and the like the melodies aren't the same at all, but the rhythm is pretty mm -hmm, similar. Mm -hmm. And I found through the whole album, these guys are really, really good at lifting little bits of things that are reminiscent, but not really derivative of other cool things. Well, in like sort of a blast from the 90s. So an interviewer recently brought up an old acquaintance of his like saying that the keyboard line was the band giving in to the corporate demand for electronic music, uh, you know, while interviewing Mary Timoney and Mary agreed with him. She was like, yeah, that keyboard line sucked. And I, I, I don't I don't what? believe that she actually thinks that they were so obsessed with this Chamberlain. Like, not like this is the me. Chemical Brothers here. Yeah. Whatever the case, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it, it, it. The synthesizer specifically give me kind of a Gary Newman vibe, like traveling down a futuristic tube or something. Yeah, it's even. Yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I also really like the idea of them saying like, okay, you want this modern keyboard sound? Well, all right, but we're going to do it on a Chamberlain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I get the sense that like, uh, they just had a wonderful time playing with all the instruments in Magister's studio. And then uh, eventually the album had to deal with the press who were like, oh, instruments. Oh, that's not guitar and drums and bass. <laughs> like, that does yeah. sound like fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, as for the lyrics here, so I like the lyrics on this one because they're pretty much the album in a nutshell. Like you have references to the 23rd century and Rainbow Dragons. Like that, that's <laughs> the uh, that, that's the money line of the album, the Rainbow Dragons. But but then you also have like a mundane observation, like all of my friends in L.A. love me more than you just sitting like side by side with it. And mm-hmm. that's kind of just how the album works in general. Like you have the escapism right next to the more mundane observations. And I noticed that she sings about friends a lot. Mm-hmm. That comes mm-hmm. up in several of these songs. And I just really like that. Yeah, who knows who Leon is. But, uh, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily somebody in her life. Like, these are characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she likes characters. And one thing I thought was funny, uh, going back to just the rock press being like, ooh, keyboards. It's funny, this came out in 97, which is the year that OK Computer came out. So I wonder if, like... Mm-hmm. You know, this is before OK Computer sort of made it cool to not sound like Pearl Jam. So it just missed that kind of wave where this could have maybe caught more ears. I think it's because OK Computer is by dudes. True. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a good point. (laughs) Anyway, time for the sleeper hit of the album, at least for me. This is Ocean of Wine. getting into the dreamy stuff the rhythm effect here really effectively conjures the feeling of riding in a boat on a gently bumpy rainbow colored ocean with your unicorn by your side and dragons <laughs> flying about well so much of this album sounds like a like fantasy coloring book and you really hear it that's here. a really good description i love that yeah the synesthetes approve <laughs> on this song you can really hear how much ash bowie adds to the sound here uh ash had never played bass before joining helium and he definitely approaches the instrument like a guy who plays guitar in polvo might, which is to say, busily. He plays a lot of chords, uh, bends strings, it just creates a lot of really cool textures. And he really adds just a neat kind of strummy uh, texture here. I'm going to say that word texture way too many times this episode, but... A lot of good textures. There are a lot of good textures. Yeah, it applies. Very textural album. But my favorite part of the song, and probably my favorite part of the entire album, is the sitting on a pinstripe section. Sitting on a pinstripe, 
section just builds such a colorful landscape of sound with Mary's guitar harmonics, the Chamberlain swells, and Ash's distorted bass, and just that neat little keyboard line. It's great. Well, it took me a while to realize how strange the song structure is here, and this applies actually to a lot of the album. Uh, You get a little taste of the sitting on a pinstripe part, which I agree is great, one of the best parts on the album. Uh, It shows up for a little bit first, and then it comes back later and takes over the entire song. Again, sort of like the ebb and flow of an ocean as the tide rolls in. The songs on Magic City rarely follow like a traditional verse chorus rock structure, but also like don't go out of their way to tell you this, uh, like with a bunch of like different parts. Like, like uh, I mean, not to throw shade at Supper's Ready or something, but like. <laughs> uh, better not be. <laughs> no, no, I love Supper's Ready, but like su- Supper's Ready like really makes it clear that you're listening to like a song that's like with a bunch of different like parts and sections. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas like, uh, I don't know, like uh, just this Mary Timoney grew up in an all classical household and not to mention her formal schooling. So she's able to take like a three minute song like this and just incorporate kind of just non-traditional structures here and make it sound really natural, uh, which I like. Yeah, I'm really conscious of what the actual structure is. It just flows so effortlessly. And I promise I wasn't dissing Supper's Ready, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, So what do you think of Ocean of Wine? This is my favorite song on the album. It's just gorgeous. And like all the songs here, it's just full of really nifty colors and textures. I mean, I'm probably going to end up saying texture a lot, too, because it applies. Uh, and that that sitting on a pinstripe section is my very favorite bit of the whole album, especially that is it is it a keyboard? Is it some kind of really distorted guitar doing that kind of high pitched descending melody? I think it's a keyboard harmonics, right? Well, there's harmonics in there, but I think that like the melody on top is the keyboard, like, oh, especially yeah. here at the end. It sounds whatever, like bubbles in the ocean. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it, does. it does. Like whatever is happening there, I absolutely love it. And I like. What you said about the bass, too, about the real busy bass parts, because in this song particularly, but in a lot of them on here, he reminds me of Paul McCartney, hmm. who also was a guitar player first. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of Beatles songs, it sounds like he's back there just playing an entirely different song that just happens to go really well with the song they're actually working mm-hmm. on. Yeah, um, he's just, yeah, he's just off in the corner, like playing his bass song. Yeah, yeah like the, the, the best example of that is something. Mm hmm where the bass is practically the lead instrument and it's just wonderful. And it's doing things that you don't necessarily expect a bass part to do. It's just all over the place. And it sounds great. Always upstaging George. Yeah. And that was apparently after George told him, Hey, dial it back, man. (laughs) And I just wanted to say one more thing about sitting on a pinstripe because I I just realized about that lyric that it's like a play on, you know, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, except it's a pinstripe. So, which I think is a a neat, just, I don't know what it means, but it's just a neat little play on that phrase. I also think of sitting on a cornflake. That's exactly what I was about to say. Oh. Going back to the Beatles, I saw. I thought sitting on a cornflake. Everything just goes back to the Beatles. Yeah, Always. Mm-hmm. They can do. Well, they invented music. That's true. They did. Yeah, we established that. Yep. Okay. Next up, more space. Yay! This is aging astronauts. This is one of my favorites. Yeah. The guitar line. Mm-hmm. Getting into this album was just like a gradual process of realizing that each song is really really cool yeah yeah just want you to pick apart Never heard 
slide guitar like that. Yeah, it's really cool. Or excuse, excuse me, pedal steel. Is that what's happening? Yeah. It's like it's adding a little ambient shading instead of being just this lead instrument. Just a really cool moody simmer with really nice subtle ambient touches that paint a picture of riding through space with glowing stars floating by. It, it sort of makes me picture a much more chill version of the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, like Echoes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and, the, and of course the astronaut in 2001 really ages. Um, but I read an interview where Mary said that this song has 10 guitar tracks layered on it and I guess that it sounds possible to me because there's just a lot in there and it's not flashy. It's just used very kind of more like adding atmosphere and like the pedal steel is just used so interestingly here where it's not just like some like country style solo. It's just adding little shadings and it's really great. And uh, as far as Betch Easter goes, you know, he's kind of a legend in his own right. He, uh, Front of the band Let's Active and uh, really made a name for himself by producing jangle pop masterpieces for REM and Game Theory. And uh, the same year he co-produced Bright in the Corners for nah, that other band on uh, Mat- Matador called Pavement. Uh, but <laughs> The previous band you covered. Yes. Oh, yeah, them. <laughs> on this album, he's basically a fourth member of the band. I think he's credited like five instruments at least on this album. And he really makes his presence known because he just adds so much to this album. Well, we talked about Mitch Easter before on the sixth episode because he sings Pillow Fight. Yeah. Yeah, and his song was covered by Smash Mouth. Yep. (laughs) I just wanted to bring that up again. Clip. (laughs) But he's apparently been referred to as the Dr. Dre of Jangle. Oh, I like that. Oh, yeah. I think the ten tracks of guitars work here because, like, unlike, say, you know, Mutt Lang, Mitch Easter uses them to create, like, a sonic tapestry instead of just piling them on top of one another because you know more is better mm-hmm. and i was just thinking you know it sounds like mitch easter's role with helium is very much like mutt langs with def leppard i think he's just mm-hmm. a very willing facilitator for her ideas is what it sounds like yeah that was the impression i got too like he is very willing to keep piling tracks on that she wanted and stuff mm-hmm. and he just has a lot of cool instruments lying around uh, to play with yeah So this is my other favorite song on here. And one of the reasons why is extremely on brand for me, because about the third or fourth time I listened to it, I realized that the intro is just a little bit reminiscent of the Moody Blues song Gypsy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a fairly simple guitar part accompanied by what I thought was probably the Chamberlain, that kind of flute sounding thing. But is that actually the pedal steel? I think so. That kind Which of. It's wild. Yeah. There's probably some Chamberlain in there too, though, just because they love their Chamberlain. Well, it's awesome. 
so yeah, that sound is just real similar. Plus the song is about space. So I did not think this was just my overactive imagination. So I decided to go see what Google had to say about it. And I found an interview with Mary Timoney where she said they'd been listening to a lot of music from the 70s and they'd say stuff to each other like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we made this song sound like the Moody Blues? And I thought, well, damn, I'm smart. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm totally right. And it's awesome. Wow. We we connect everything to the Moody Blues, but this is one of the only times we managed to back that up with research. Yeah, (laughs) there is actual solid evidence for this. And I really, really love it. This is a fantastic song. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Uh, another way this album was made for you. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I also like the little descending melody when the rhythm drops out. The It sounds like a falling star to me, mm-hmm. like you're looking up in space. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only other thing I'll say is that the uh, the title, Aging Astronauts, it just, it, it reminds me of this, uh, one of the first SNL digital shorts where about like, it's about like old Neil Armstrong living his elderly life, just like running errands mm-hmm. and eating cereal and stuff. And every so often he thinks... Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Or like Buzz Aldrin shouting, I walked on your face. So that's the random stuff that Aging Astronauts puts into my head. Yeah. Oh, and actually, there's another of those instances where an especially cool line jumps out when she says, The stars that killed you will bring you light. Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic line. I like, I ride a plane almost every day. I've seen the freaks lost in the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. It should have these weird little like earthy asides in some of these more cosmic sounding songs that kind of throw me sometimes, but they're neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Leon Space Song. You're kind of like fading between fantasy and reality. It's just part of the overall effect of this album. Okay, everyone, Mary Timoney is going to get medieval people on your ass. Track five. <laughs> I was blasting this in the car, and the explosions actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah. (laughs) Just that extra touch. Understanding this is basically an Ash Bowie showcase as he wrote and recorded everything, and well, it's awesome. Sure, it's a fairly repetitive instrumental, but I could listen to that little harpsichord loop and never get sick of it. There's just something so hypnotic and just great <laughs> about that little melody. <laughs> and Mary and Ash were apparently really into video game music at the time, and you can really hear it here. Uh, again, the tinny electronic section sounds like it's just straight out of a underwater level in Sonic the Hedgehog, which means I should probably be more stressed out by it than I am. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'll find a bubble. And the video game music influence goes even further back with Mary. Her previous band, Autoclave, also did a cover of the Paperboy theme, which we will hear here. 
headlines i always like the idea of delivering a paper with the headline Paperboy delivers <laughs> <laughs> oh i nearly forgot this song has explosions in it oh yeah the explosions were apparently produced by ash bowie literally just going into a microphone with heavy reverb on it and for it, real yeah <laughs> wow <laughs> and it works it sure does. Well, so the way the song feels to me is the beginning kind of feels like you're traveling through a time vortex, like the way it's kind of distorted at first. And then you emerge and the band is playing in 14th century England. Uh, but like the Hundred Years War keeps breaking out around them and messing everything up. Yeah. <laughs> but like uh, the album's medieval trappings were actually kind of an albatross around the band's neck for a while. Like Alternative Press magazine apparently had them dress up in like medieval garb for a photo shoot. We'll try to find some pictures and put it on 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 Twitter, and it looks about as awkward as you would expect. <laughs> and and then you get onto like a, like Pitchfork's reviews of her own solo career, which like those reviews have the tone of just snide schoolyard bullying. Like they even call one of her albums a twelve sided die and aromatic candle companion piece. Oh, Pitchfork, you're so cool. Good job, bros. <laughs> yeah, seriously. What do you think, Amanda? More songs need explosions in them. And, and these explosions are good and loud, which is just like I wanted the explosion in The Three Fates by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer to be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was kind of soft and sort of muddy, but these are real punchy. You know, they're they're great. And I have no evidence to suggest that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was the inspiration for these explosions. But like, for real, the 60s and 70s prog references are just all over the place. So it's not impossible. You know, what's funny is they're, they're prog references, but they're employed... You know, it's not like neo-prog where it can be kind right. of overly retro, where these are, they really kind of reappropriate them in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said before, they just take little elements and use them in totally new ways. Well, neo-prog is just taking prog and like Xeroxing it. Yeah. Making yeah. it cheesier. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as for like the video game music component of this song, like part of the sound that they were trying to capture, uh, I read, is that video game music is really like dynamic while staying just really thin and trebly just because like old TVs couldn't reproduce bass very well. Mm -hmm. So uh, but that's well, that's definitely one thing I noticed even listening to this album is that my subwoofer wasn't really getting much of a workout. It's uh, <laughs> it, just a lot of what's going on is in the is in the high range. I'm curious how they did it. I know they did uh, a lot of stuff in Pro Tools on here, so maybe they just kind of did some digital shortcuts to get the EQ a certain way, but it's really interesting to hear. Well, if we're done with that surreal medieval celebration, let's move on to track six, Lady of the Fire.
gas lines. <laughs> Sounds unpleasant. So now adding some Eastern influences and sitar to the mix. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard the mandolin played aggressively before, but Mitch Easter sure makes it sound dark and tense here. And just in case you were not paying attention to the lyrics, Mary does wake up here and say that she will make love to a unicorn. So enjoy that. Why not? Now, Hell yeah. the, the heavy chorus here is probably the closest this album comes to sounding anything like uh, The Dirt of Luck. And it's a welcome dash of anger and dark clouds. I, I like it. And uh, there's a really great Chamberlain solo near the end, too. That Chamberlain. Mm. Uh, Mary sounds a lot like Shirley Manson here. Yeah. I think. Yeah, she does. Uh, this is actually the first track on the album that I don't really like all that much. Um it's just not really that interesting to me, although I couldn't really tell you why, because there's plenty going on. And I, I don't know, For part of it is that if I can detour into Synesthesia Corner for just a second, most of this album is super colorful. But for some reason, this song is just kind of gray. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't like it. I get that. Well, and I think that it's it's, sound, it's one that sounds the most like a holdover from the last album, too, where it's yeah. it kind of sounds like it's a bit dressed up for this album. But at its core, it sounds a little more like one of their old songs. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what you think of The Dirt of Luck, Amanda, because even though I like that album, it, this is kind of in the style of it. And it would be far and away the best song on it. Yeah. It just it has a lot of swagger that you don't really have on the, on that album. Hmm. But since producer Mike couldn't be here, I wanted to share his his thoughts about the song because I thought they were great. He said that Lady of the Fire sounds like XTC went up to Sonic Youth and said, how would you like to be the Dukes of Stratosphere for a while? (laughs) And the Dukes of Stratosphere is XTC's psychedelic alter ego. So that's a that's a pretty deep cut right there. Does sound very Sonic Youthy. Yeah. 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 With some psychedelic influence. Yeah. Which could be why I don't like it, because I don't like Sonic Youth either. (laughs) Mary Timoney must love it, too, because it's the name of her website, which is uh, currently down, but you can access it on the Wayback Machine. We'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, it has a bunch of interviews on it that she clearly transcribed herself because there's a remark from Pitchfork that she brackets hateful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and just before she hangs her head to cry, I sing to her a lullaby of the moths. (laughs) Track seven. into straight-up medieval chamber folk. And this might be the one song in the album where I think I appreciate the presentation more than the actual song itself. Yeah, I feel like she would kind of do something similar to this style on her next two solo albums to a better effect. 
But there's really, you can't argue with the the production on here, especially when it opens up with a big crescendo with the xylophone. It just sounds so cinematic and huge. And it's one thing that's kind of funny is, at least in the CD liner notes, I think in the vinyl too, uh, this is this song and the next song only ones that have these ornately illustrated lyrics, whereas the rest of the album is just typefaced. So I don't know if they began with those two songs or just like, oh, we don't have time to do all these like this. So uh, here you go. It's like that in the vinyl, too. Yeah, I'm not sure what the deal is. I love that crescendo, the big wordless chorus, like the way it kind of feels like the sky is opening up after the verses. Uh, yeah. it, it feels to me kind of like something St. Vincent would do. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if she was into this album. Oh, totally. Yeah. And just uh, only a side thing. But while researching this song, I found a paper published in the journal American Entomologist titled Insects and Rock and Roll Music. And this song is included <laughs> as part of the data, <laughs> as well as the song 13 Bees from No Guitars. How extensive is that article? Now I'm trying to think of other songs with insects in them. You can find some really strange stuff if you look on Google Scholar. Hmm. Uh, Amanda, what do you think? Uh, this is the one song that I had actually heard before because Will clipped it for the Wasp's Nests episode. And oh, yeah. I liked it then and I like it now. <laughs> it sounds it kind of vaguely Greek to me. And I'm always expecting that guitar at the beginning to be a bouzouki, and there there might actually be one later, unless that's actually a mandolin. I can't really tell, but the whole thing is really lovely. I like this a lot. That's one thing we should note is that we've covered Mary Timoney on the show before on the on our episode about wasps' nests by the Sixths, mm-hmm. <laughs> pronouncing that. Uh, and her yeah, she's is one of the best ones on there. Yeah, she sings track three, all dressed up in dreams. And then there's the Mitch Easter connection too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a very sixthy album. Yeah. Okay, so track eight. So Yes may have sang about war and peace in the Gates of Delirium, but this is the Revolution of Hearts, parts one and two. opening at last we get our big eight minute prog epic in this track mary employs what is probably the most tasteful use of guitar finger tapping this side of steve hackett for the non-guitarists out there finger tapping is a technique where if you're right-handed instead of plucking the string with your right hand you actually tap a note on the fretboard and that's kind of what's making that interesting little like repetitive pattern that she's doing And I believe Steve Hackett of Genesis actually claimed to invent the technique, and he was definitely an early pioneer, as can be heard in the uh, Dancing in the Moonlit Night. (music) 
However, finger tapping would eventually become a preferred gimmick of flashy guitar shredders in the 80s. The quintessential showcase of this is Van Halen's Eruption. Uh, Mary, on the other hand, takes the classy route here and uses it more as a cool texture for the song rather than some impressive stunt just to showcase her chops. In fact, one of the things I really like about her as a guitarist is that she's an incredibly gifted guitarist who constantly comes up with these interesting ideas that sound cool but never seem overindulgent. And going back to the song, I like the unexpected shifts from the soaring finger tapping sections with the big drums to the little strummy sections that kind of bring you back to earth. It's sort of like just being snapped out of a dream. Again, we mentioned that earlier. And on the original vinyl, parts one and two are actually split between sides, which is kind of irritating when you have to get up and flip the record over as it's about to take off. It's that Carnival 9 influence. Oh, God, that's great. Yeah, yeah. it really is. <laughs> but this is fantastic. Like, it is deservedly kind of the the centerpiece of the album. And Mary mm-hmm. said it was the most fun one to record. So I can imagine that. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I like this first part with the vocals just fine, but it's it's the next part starting about maybe two and a half minutes in where the song just really takes off for me with the drums and whatever's doing that nifty syncopated melody that I think we're about to hear. tell if it's a keyboard of some kind or if they've done something wild with the guitars. Yeah, that's the finger tapping there. Is it? Yeah. Those little synth oozes. Awesome. I like the kind of uh, My Bloody Valentine-y vocal overdubs here, too. Yeah. There's a little bit of feedback at like six and a half minutes in. It kind of hurts my ears a little bit, but it's also pretty rad, so it doesn't bother me. And I just adore the drum sound throughout the whole thing. This this song is just dreamy. Yeah, well, on the vinyl version that I have, uh, Dan, so yeah, side two opens with Lullaby of the Moths, and uh, I, I guess that's better sequencing than we originally got, but I... I, I to me, the side would open better if it had like the big regal crash that opens Revolution of Hearts Part One. Yeah, it's a trouble with vinyl. You gotta cut it where you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that that's something I can't actually complain about in this day and age, uh, and sound like a member of society. But anyway, like Part Two <laughs> is where I really start to hear the video game influence myself. Besides, I hear it on Medieval People too. But like, uh, just uh, hearing it like really drawn out here, like the way it's more of a sustained drone that lasts for a while and goes through a few distinct loops. Like, I could picture a song like this just looping forever as the soundtrack to a really trippy like Gradius style space shooter or something some level you can never beat (laughs) yes you can never win at the revolution of hearts (laughs) in the revolution of hearts you win or you die (laughs) okay next up we have ancient crime and in keeping with the style of the album that's crime with a y
I thought this was a weaker track, but while I was sort of reabsorbing this album into my brain for the podcast, I really started to warm up to it. And I think it's the song's placement after the big epic is kind of what made it seem a little slight to me in the past. But I really like the way the verse with its odd, twisty bass line melts into that sweet, kind of sunny, melodic chorus. And again, of course, with an album with as many prog references, I can only assume that the crime of the Y is a nod to Genesis. <laughs> yeah, it's an ancient nursery crime. <laughs> <laughs> I buy that. Yeah. yeah, this this also to me sort of feels like a throwback to earlier helium or maybe it's just because it fits into that whole like kind of clunky pavement sort of aesthetic of playing like catchy riffs that use all of the wrong notes. Yeah, um, it's a happier yeah. take on early helium, though, at least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like how the vocal melody is doubled by a, a chimey keyboard part. And there's uh, like, I, I didn't even notice it until the last time I listened to the song, but there's a, there's an overdubbed Mary singing some wordless counterpoint yeah, in the like background, that. <laughs> which I think is nice. Yeah. Uh, actually, I haven't brought this up yet, but I think that Mary Timoney has a really, really lovely voice and like almost never puts herself at the front of the mix, which uh, I, I think gives her sort of like a master behind the curtain quality that I like. Yeah, it's kind of understated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I bring it up on this song especially because I like I really love the timbre of her voice on the um, I'll be on top of the mountain that's covered in snow part. Yeah. But yeah. I do think this is a relatively weak track on the album and the the sequencing doesn't help it, but I don't know. It, I mean, I like it fine, but it's not a standout. I I do also though really like the contrast between the verses and the chorus, which sound like they belong to two completely different songs, but they still go together really well. All right, next up is track 10, Cosmic Rays. Shake your cosmic rays! Is that a glockenspiel? I think so, yeah. It's it's nice. Yeah, that's not in the liner notes. Huh. I think percussion is credited, so I guess that's their catch-all for (laughs) all the chiming instruments. Tree. For more about the Mark Tree, please consult episode 5, Dave Matthews Band, Under the Table and Dreaming. <laughs> There's a connection I was not expecting. <laughs> He's bad. <laughs> So this is the sleeper of the album for me. Uh, I really did not make much of this song the first, I don't know, dozen or so times I played the album, but it's become a big highlight. I I just love that melancholy guitar line. 
but it's the big swell into the chorus that really hits me where you can just hear the entire soundscape just widen like a you know like when you're at the movies and the screen widens for the the uh, <laughs> feature presentation and actually the guitar line it kind of reappears in another song of hers called rock man on the uh, mary timothy band album the shapes we make and that song's great too well i like any song called rock man oh man <laughs> <laughs> enough Plant with the man. video game music rich <laughs> what do you think amanda well, I really like that it starts off with St. Christopher, who's the patron saint of travelers. Uh, legend has it that he served Jesus Christ by carrying people across a dangerous river. This is back like in the 300s and eventually carried a child across the river who then turned out to be Christ himself. History does not relate whether there were dragons playing by this particular river, but that could explain why it was so dangerous. So it goes without saying that they don't say whether there are rainbow dragons. Right, right. I like to think they were, but rainbow dragons don't sound very dangerous, so it does that doesn't really fit. But this song actually sounds a little King Crimson-y to me. Uh, oh, particularly yeah. when the Chamberlain starts up, it reminds me of the Mellotron and Epitaph. Again, the melodies are not the same at all, but it's that same sense of something really enormous and grand about to happen. But then instead of that big grand thing happening, this one just drops back down, which is a fun little subversion. This is a great song. Yeah, more synesthesia corner for me. So whereas Ocean of Wine sounds kind of like the ebb and flow of an ocean, uh, like the, the Chamberlain blasts on this song, they they sound or look to me kind of like the northern lights or like the midnight sun or something. Oh. Yeah, well, I I generally get that vibe from Mellotron strings, honestly, and it's it's used to really great effect here, especially because the song is literally about cosmic rays or or whatever it's about, but it's called cosmic rays. I feel like a broken record. I'm just gonna say I love this one, but I like every song on this album. So. Yeah, my notes get like increasingly more vague the further I go down. Where it's like, hey, this one's got <laughs> neat sounds in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that problem too, which is a great problem to have. Like, it's another great song with interesting sounds. Okay, Magic City Dwellers, it's time for track 11, Devil's Tear. have a criticism for this album it's that it is a bit front-loaded for me where a lot of perfectly good songs in the second half kind of don't stand out to me and this is one of them 
it's just not quite as interesting from a compositional standpoint. I do like that slinky guitar line at the beginning and uh, the, the little Spanish flourish where the trumpet is nice. But this is one where it feels a bit like I enjoy it on its own, but in the album, it gets a little lost. Yeah, uh, that opening guitar riff reminds me of something, but I can't quite put my finger on it and it's driving me nuts. Like, it's almost like Heart Full of Soul, but that's I don't think that's what I'm thinking of. And this is going to drive me crazy until I figure it out. But otherwise, I like this song just fine, but I don't have a whole lot else to say about it. Listeners, if you know what it sounds like, write in at discordpod at gmail.com. Yes, and save my sanity, please. We almost never mention our email address. We suck at this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I didn't notice this song for a while either, but actually I read a contemporary review of the album that called it the obvious highlight. Really? Which I thought was interesting, yeah. Uh, And listening to it on its own, I can kind of hear it. Uh, I think the reason it blends in when you listen to the album front to back is because it kind of sounds like Leon's space song. Like, listen to them back to back. They're they're really seem like chugga chugga. Uh, But in this case, instead of like the the horn section gives it like a nice critic-friendly Elephant Six sort of vibe, you know, unlike those awful, despicable sellout synthesizers. (laughs) (laughs) Horns are okay, though. Did they hear Revolution of Hearts? That's funny because, yeah, we were playing this in the car last night. My wife said, oh, I like this song when it came on. I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> I like it too, but it, it does just sort of fade in the background a little bit. Uh, ever since we did the War of the Worlds episode, that's basically all my wife has listened to because she's <laughs> awesome. Lucky gal. <laughs> all right, my darlings. Track 12 is Clementine. Darlings. <laughs> one last bit of dark drama for the final stretch of the album and these are indeed by far the grimmest lyrics in the album complete with lines about poor clementine's bones crunching in the miller's mill and musically there's a lot of great tension and release here and i'm always up for some marimba there you go well i don't want to sully this song for amanda but this reminds me of kate bush like oh, the way it oh, almost I, feels yeah, I can like, hear that. Yeah. yeah the way it almost feels like a little self-contained theater production or yeah something. it's very theatrical yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Th- this is also pretty typical of the kind of darker music that defines Mary Timoney's solo album. So if this song is a highlight for you, be sure to check those ones out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, what do you think? Uh, well, it's not a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's because of the Kate Bush thing. I just ruined it right there. <laughs> no, that's fine. But I mean, the, the Clementine part is funny because, you know, you are lost and gone forever. Dreadful. Sorry, Clementine. And that that Clementine drowned, too. And, you know, maybe it's Donovan's fault, given that it's apparently the season of the witch. Um, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up now. But I like the song. But I mean, it's not a big highlight, but it's good. I mean, that 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 does kind of sound like the lyrical approach, like taking a bunch of like cool imagery and stitching it together. So, yeah. uh, you know, you're not off the mark. <laughs> 
Okay, our penultimate track is Blue Rain Soda, or Blue Rain Pop, if you're where I am, or Blue Rain Coke, if you're where Dan is. not quite as exciting of an instrumental as medieval people but it's something that's quite nice i uh, think it works well as a bridge to the the final track and the stately harpsichord melody here reminds me a bit of frank zappa's abc uh so there i mentioned a miniature tie healing to frank zappa i've done my job <laughs> We've fulfilled our podcast destinies, Dan. What do you think, Amanda? Uh, it's interesting sounds playing a nice melody. I'm always down for that. And it doesn't go on for very long. It's just enough to make its point. It's just, it's a very pleasant little song. I don't, I, I think I sound like I'm dismissing it, but I'm not. I really like this one a lot, but there's just, there's not a whole lot to it, but that's fine. What there is is really good. Well, as a medieval person, this is the clear highlight of the album for me. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think that this song is actually 100% Mary because the liner notes credit her with, quote, the soda song. And so, huh. like, it, yeah, it feels like the song that plays after Clementine, like, dramatically closes the main set. Uh, and then the band is, like, you know, changing out of their medieval garb and stuff, like their hair shirts, uh, to become a regular <laughs> band again for the encore. But there's not really much to say about this. It's, it's just an interlude, really. It's lovely. Yeah, it's nice. It, yeah, there's not a lot of substance to it, but I, I wouldn't want to take it off the album either. Right. Okay, let's bring things to a close with track 14, Walk Away. normal rock song this is one where again it's kind of 
similar to maybe the older style where it doesn't indulge as much in the uh, medieval flourishes of the rest of the album. But it's kind of cool to have it end on sort of this earthy extended jam. Um, And to me, this song really is all about that extended intro with just the bass feedback, just kind of like hovering over the entire sound. at the time, but this sure seems like a appropriate final song for the band's final album. Well, this is actually the one song on here that I don't really like much at all. Uh, the instrumentation is not as interesting to me as the prior songs, and I really don't like the vocal delivery very much. My one real criticism of the album as a whole is it's a little too long, which is a common issue in the 90s, and I, I honestly feel like this could have been left off. No, see, I, I, I get that, yeah, because it definitely does sort of feel like them kind of like Rich mentioned them stripping away their medieval costumery to sort of just do the big rock song to end the mm-hmm. record. So it definitely does kind of feel like a bit of an outlier. And yeah, the album, it, it does get a bit shaggy in the second half. I'll, yeah, I'll admit that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like this one in terms of sequencing because I, I think that like, well, if the whole album sounded like this, uh, I'd get pretty bored. And I think if it were at like the beginning, I wouldn't think very much of it. But I, yeah, I like it as like, so to speak, the encore, like after all the weird twists and terms of like the Magic City and the Fidelatorium and Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium and whatever, <laughs> like it's really, really satisfying to close out the album with just for me, like a sturdy alternative rock song. Like, honestly, most alternative albums leave me begging for some damn variety. And here it actually is the variety. So I like the turnaround. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And that brings us to the end of The Magic City. I'm glad we finally got to cover this one. So, Dan, uh, what are your final thoughts on the album Helium and Mary Timoney? Well, so this is the album that really turned me into a Mary Timoney fan. And I will basically follow her into whatever project she's working on. Uh, she tends to stay, stay pretty busy. But in my opinion, this remains her most ambitious and impressive work to date. Uh, she would kind of continue down this road of mystical prog influences for a few more solo albums. But here she really just had the tools in the band to craft this just sonically awesome collection of songs. And it's just such a fun, colorful album to get lost in. Yeah, uh, well, for me, I know that this album was well-reviewed when it came out, but it, it didn't get handed to you when you signed up for your indie rock badge, like the way that OK Computer and Odelay were. Oh, yeah, not I, at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hadn't heard I hadn't heard of this until recently, and honestly, it's because the rock canon and what makes it on all of the all-time lists is a real boys club. Mm-hmm. And the, what, that really? Unfor- <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm, I'm making a really, like... The <laughs> profound point here, uh, but that, and that unfortunately extends to the community where we all met. Like this, this album just never came up. Even even though all of us prog heads would have gone nuts over this if like Caravan had recorded it or something. Hmm. Uh, so I'm happy I came across this album, and I'm even happier that Dan finally got to share it with everyone. What are your final thoughts, Amanda? It, well, right after I volunteered to step in on this episode, like three days ago, there was just a second where I thought, "Oh no, what have I done?" <laughs> 
Because I, I tend to have some trouble with 90s indie rock because I find that a lot of it just sounds the same to me. You know, on some albums, I have a hard time even distinguishing the tracks from one another. And it's so frustrating. Like, you guys are independent musicians. Why do you all sound identical? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just, it's a sound that I'm not as familiar with as other stuff. So I just really have to work hard to find the differences. But that did not end up being a problem at all with the Magic City. It's... It's bright and clear and colorful, except for Lady of the Fire and Walk Away, which both sound kind of muddy to me, and that's probably why I don't like them as much. But I didn't have any kind of problem telling the songs apart from each other. There's always something new and interesting happening. So I've been extremely happy to keep this album on a constant repeat for the past few days. And it turned out that of all the albums I've studied for this podcast that I didn't know before, my favorite is still War of the Worlds because it's just so crazy. But this actually turned out to be a pretty close second. I'm really, really glad I got to do this. Oh. So, Dan, if somebody liked Helium's Magic City but was confused by Mary Timoney's discography, help them sort through it. What's, what should they listen to? Well, the obvious next step would be Helium's only other full-length album, The Dirt of Luck. It's a much different album that's a lot more rooted in mid-90s guitar rock, but it's I think it's almost as strong as The Magic City. Um, it, it really has a lot of just Mary's just unique, distinct guitar style. She's a really great guitarist. I don't think I've probably harped on that enough because she's a really, probably one of my favorite guitarists. Just always has interesting ideas. But if you want something a little more like The Magic City, I would actually recommend her two follow-up solo albums, uh, Mountains and The Golden Dove, which continued this style on a more stripped-down approach. We wander through the fields of insufferable weeds. We watch for the people coming out to feed. They feed on rocks and they feed on blood. And only the strong have fed on love. Victory. second both of those mountains is outstanding and yeah yeah it's wow, really get that good. one next um but if you want more for guitar oriented rock stuff i would really recommend the self-titled album by wild flag which is a sadly short-lived supergroup featuring mary timoney with members of slater kenny and the minders
they just took one record, but it's really, really good. And another great one is The Shapes We Make by the Mary Timoney Band. And if it sounds like I'm recommending everything, it's because it's all really good. You should just get everything. It's out there. Buy it. One thing I'll say about the Wild Flag album is that keep in mind that you're you're basically getting like half of a Carrie Brownstein Slater Kinney album. So like uh, the Mary Timoney songs are really good, but just make sure you like Slater Kinney first. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, you should. But not everybody does. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I'd I'd also uh, the band that got me into Mary Timoney, I would recommend that you check out X Hex. So unlike all of like the crazy complicated stuff here on Magic City and Helium and her solo stuff, like X Hex is intentionally really straightforward, just like power chords and. Uh, like simple, straightforward, sunny melodies. And this was actually apparently a challenge for her because she was used because because uh, Mary Timoney was used to just, you know, writing complicated songs. And um, I particularly recommend the album It's Real, which came out last year. And uh, Amanda, you're going to like this because it's intentionally meant to evoke like arena rock like Def Leppard. Ooh, yeah, I will like that. <laughs> There's some cars in there, too. There's a really great song called Good Times that I love. Excellent ways to get me to listen to something, compare it to Def Leppard and the Cars. Yeah, and like Dan, my recommendation for Mary Timoney is everything. So uh, I'll go a little off-center and recommend the album Lush by Lindsay Jordan, a.k.a. Snail Mail, uh, who is Mary Timoney's guitar student. Oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as of this recording, Jordan still cannot legally drink in America, uh, but she writes and records like (laughs) 90s style indie rock like she lived the whole decade. And it, it basically sounds like an entire album of the catchiest Sonic Youth songs. Do you have anything, Amanda, anything that sounds like this, anything related to this? To our children's children's children. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually just thinking, you know, if you like space travel and dragons, you should read All the Weirs of Pern by Anne McCaffrey. (laughs) Oh, we can we can recommend like fantasy and sci fi for days. Oh, yeah. Just read all of Anne McCaffrey's books. They're very good. Okay, well, done with the Magic City. I'm so happy that we did that one. Thank you, Dan. So next album. Our next album is so Canadian that we require two Canadians to discuss it. (laughs) One and a half. (laughs) So Amanda has invited her husband, Sean Rogers, to talk about the 1992 album Fully Completely by The Tragically Hip, a band with at least three songs about hockey. (laughs) Yep. And get your Canada jokes out of the way now, guys, because Amanda and Sean will be having none of it. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream The Magic City and other albums by Helium and Mary Timoney's other projects at your local Sam Goody, as well as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. And we made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. 
Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at DiscordPod for news and updates. Editing is by me, and special thanks to Mike for his production and editing skills. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Wonderful.